0: you're able to stand Luke 23 verse 44 and it was about the sixth hour and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour and the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice he said father into thy hands I commend my spirit and having said thus he gave up the ghost So I want to talk to you this morning, if I can, if I can get through it, about three hours that changed the world when hell came to Calvary, when hell came to Calvary. I'm going to ask Preacher Larry if he will ask God to help me and open our ears to hear. Um, Up until now, the scenes of the cross are are focused on the things that are happening in the natural. Uh, Crucifixion was not that uncommon. I've been practiced for years um, by different people, and uh, I'm sorry, I just feel such a heaviness in my spirit this morning. I feel like there's somebody here today, maybe somebody that's watching on Facebook that just desperately needs, the Lord wants to speak to you and tell you that he's paid the price for you. He's paid the ultimate price for you. You can be saved. You can just write where you are. You don't have to wait till I'm done with the message. You can come to this altar and pray, and and worship, but God's calling out to you, and I just praise you, Lord, for what you're doing, but uh, crucifixion is not that uncommon, and uh, unfortunately, we focus only on the natural aspects of it sometimes, you know, the pain, and the agony of it, and it was a cruel, uh, cruel and, and unusual punishment reserved for the worst of criminals, and Jesus was most undeserving, because he had never sinned. And he had endured a mockery uh, of trials, six trials he had endured. All of them were unjust. And, uh, and even in the midst of those trials, they, they everyone's proclaiming his innocence. Even Pilate's wife proclaimed his innocence. Uh, the only bright, shining moment in those first three hours, Jesus is crucified about 9 o'clock in the morning. And the only bright spot in all of that is really one thief who before had been Um, blaspheming himself, but he comes to his senses and he recognizes that Jesus is no ordinary man, that the Messiah is on the cross. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a prayer. We always think we have to pray the most eloquent prayers, but God answers the most simple, simple prayers. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, forgive me of my sins. Those are the simple prayers. God, he, he will hear. He'll hear your humble cry. And then, uh, we talk a lot about the love of the cross, and it was, man. Preacher Larry put on the sign this week, and thank you so much. Appreciate the sign uh, ministry that Preacher Larry does every week. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. Mm. He died for us. <laughs> but when we get to that sixth hour, which is about 12 o'clock, darkness comes on the whole earth. Now, this is not an eclipse. It, uh, eclipse doesn't last three hours. And Passover is always during the the, the full moon. So it wasn't possible. But this darkness covered the whole earth. Now Jesus uh, is going to say three things in the first three hours. He's going to pray. He's going to say three things from the cross, um, a total of seven. Now this darkness, there's four miracles that happen at the cross. I'm going to talk about two of them. Um, The first one is darkness comes all over. Now, what did the darkness mean? You got to understand that this is the middle of the day; the sun is at its apex, and nobody's out there with lamps and torches because this is in the middle of the day. And all of a sudden, this comedy—you know—they've been making fun of Jesus and mocking him—and all of a sudden, the comedy becomes a drama, and darkness envelops the whole, uh, the whole earth. Luke says. And I, uh, I wondered, what would the people think about that? We just read it, and we think, okay, it was dark for three hours. But what would those Jews think in, uh, in that time period? What would they think about the darkness? Now, we, we associate God with light all the time, don't we? God is light. In him is no darkness at all. That's what John says. But in the Old Testament, one of the first encounters we have with God, uh, we see of him is in uh, Genesis 15. Turn with me there. I'm going to get you to look at several scriptures this morning. Genesis uh, 15. Let me get some of you to help me here this morning. Adam, I may get you to help me here. In Genesis 15, God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. Okay? Now. Normally in a covenant, in, in, in ancient days, there would be animals uh, laid out. They would be killed and laid out. And usually the people would walk between the two pieces, ratifying the, uh, the agreement. But in Genesis 15, that's not what happens here. Something unusual happens. And God's going to tell Abraham, you're going to sit this one out. Because this is what we call, uh, uh, in theological terms, a unilateral covenant. Sorry, it's taking me a minute to get to here. I want to make sure I give that. Adam. Adam, if you'll read 1 through 12.
1: After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, But be- seeing that I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from you, your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look, now toward the heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know what I will inherit? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all three to him and cut them into two down the middle and placed each Piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him.
0: So, great darkness is associated here with the presence of God. A lot of people think that this darkness on Calvary is the devil doing his thing, but uh, a careful uh, examination we will see. That God, this is the presence of God here. This is a miracle uh, that's taking place. All right, look with me in Exodus 10, <coughs> which is next book over, Exodus chapter 10. And this is the ninth plague that comes on the, uh, the people of Egypt. Just before the Passover. Keep in mind, all of this is within the context of the Passover. Uh, Jesus is dying at Passover. He's fulfilling the feast of Passover. So just before the Passover, um, we get to Exodus 10. Adam, if you would read uh, verses 21
1: through 23. Exodus 10, 21 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven. There may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hands toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings.
0: Notice in 21, uh, it says darkness which may be felt is palpable. And, And I believe that these people on Mount Calvary, when that darkness descended There was a horror that came upon them. And all of a sudden, all the laughing and all the mockery was over. Uh, Go with me to Exodus 19. Adam, if you'd read verses 16 through 18. Exodus 19, 16 through 18.
1: Then it came to pass in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings with a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. Amen. And they stood at the Amen. foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire.
0: its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Okay, there's an earthquake. All right, keep on reading in, Adam in Exodus 20. Exodus 20 um, and verse 21.
1: verse 21 Just verse 21 So the people stood afar off but Moses drew near in the thick dark thick darkness where God was
0: Notice in the thick darkness who's there God God's God's there with Jesus uh, on Mount Calvary and he brought hell uh, to bear Let's look in Joel. Um, He's one of the the prophets, of course. I'll give you a minute to get there. Joel chapter 1. Now, one of the major themes of the Old Testament is the the day of the Lord. Uh, This eschatological judgment where God pours out his wrath uh, on the earth. Joel 1 adam if you'll read we're gonna look at several scriptures in joel uh adam if you'll read joel one fifteen i't let's see if you if you just if you can find uh Ezekiel then you got daniel then you got hosea joel one fifteen
1: last of the day for the day of the Lord is at hand it shall come as destruction from the almighty
0: all right now Joel 2 verses 1 and 2
1: Below the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in the holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming and for it is at hand a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness like the morning clouds spread over all the mountains all
0: right now verse 10 same chapter I'm sorry. Did you just read 10? Okay, verse 10.
1: The earthquakes before them and heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the
0: stars diminish their brightness. All right, now verses uh, 30 and 32, or 30
1: and 31. And I will show you wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Before the coming of the of the great
0: and awesome day of the Lord. All right, now in chapter 3 of Joel, um, if you read verse 15.
1: It, the sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness.
0: All right, now let's go to the next book over, which is Amos. We're not, we're not going to go through all the Old Testament prophets, so don't get nervous. But I want you to see this. Next book over, Amos. Chapter 5, verse 20. Would you read that, Adam? Amos 5, verse
1: 20. Is not the day of the Lord, darkness and not light. It is very dark, with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your peace, and I do not savor your second
0: assembly. All right, one more, Adam, then I'll give you a break. At Amos 8, verse 9.
1: And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight.
0: All right, thank you. So, uh, these, these Jews here, they would have associated this with uh, wrath, the wrath of God coming on the earth. I mean, that had never happened before. Has that ever happened to us? Three hours of total darkness? No. This is the wrath of God. Being poured out not on the Romans, not on the Jews, but on the Son. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Hell came to Calvary that day, and Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. Hell is the absence of God's comforting presence but it is the, uh, the place of his punishing presence. The Bible says he destroys both body and soul in hell. G. Morgan Campbell says there's a transaction that took place in those three hours of darkness, and I wouldn't dare try to tell you what all happened in there, because I don't know. Charles Spurgeon says that God pulled the curtain for three hours So that no man could look upon what was going on at that time. Nobody was worthy to look on the precious Son of God as he bore the wrath of God. There's no talking, nobody's talking, nobody's looking. Just Jesus and God taking care of the sin debt of the world at that moment. This is the cup. This is the cup that Jesus said, Father, if it's possible. Let it pass from me. It wasn't the physical agony of the cross. That's not what he dreaded. It was that moment when he would bear the sin of all mankind. And not just the sin, but the wrath of God during that time. That's why the Bible says we're not appointed under wrath. You know why? Because Christ has already bore the wrath for me. That's why you can't convince me I'm going through the tribulation because Jesus paid the price for me where I don't have to endure God's wrath, not through the tribulation and not through eternity. No extra charge for that one. That wasn't in my outline. (laughs) Um, But this is the cup. And the Bible says that Jesus tasted death for every man, the book of Hebrews said. For every man. This is not physical death. This is spiritual death. He tasted it for every man. Now, at the ninth hour, the light comes back on. Now, we get the fourth saying of Jesus. And turn with me to Mark 15. Mark 15. Now, when we get to verse 33, uh, he repeats what Luke says. All three uh, synoptics record the darkness, by the way. But at verse 34, it says, In the ninth hour, when the darkness is passing... You with me? Because it was dark from the 6th to the ninth hour. So as the darkness passes, Jesus cried with a loud voice. And this is uh, Aramaic, Aramaic, so bear with me here. (laughs) Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is a quote of Psalm 22, by the way. And uh, King David, in Psalm 22, predicted that the Messiah would be crucified. A thousand years before crucifixion really had become a big thing. So, you know, if you're looking for proof that the word of God is real, there, there's a proof for you right there. King David, and, and the Jews didn't crucify people. They, uh, this was the Romans that did this. Um, so he cries, uh, this, this cry. Now, this is the first time, as far as I know, that when he prays, he doesn't call God Father. He says, my God, my God. And that doesn't mean the relationship has been severed, mind you. But at this point, he is enduring the wrath of Almighty God. And uh, John MacArthur said this. We might wonder after the, the, the darkness passes, why is it that Jesus is talking to God in these terms? But here's, here's what John MacArthur says. He says, Jesus is experiencing the final suffering of hell. You see, God before had been there to comfort Jesus in his time of greatest need. When he fasted for 40 days, the angels came and ministered to him after the devil tempted him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. His sweat became as drops of blood. And then the Bible says the angels came and ministered unto him. Now Jesus has endured the full wrath of God for three hours. But there's no comforting presence for him. That's the final suffering of hell. And all those that go to hell... That's one of the worst parts of it, not just the, the torment of the suffering, but to never have the comfort of God. Never have anybody to, to, to have any sympathy or comfort. Uh, it, that would be the most awful thing. And darkness, just outer darkness. The Bible speaks of hell in terms of outer darkness. I hear, I hear people joke about it, about going to hell all the time. Uh, some people say that they can't wait to go to hell. And it's the most awful thing. That's why we ought not even joke about those things. Completely apart from the comfort of God. And Jesus tasted all of that for you and for me. Let's go back to Luke 23. Luke 23. Now when we get to verse 45... It says, the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Now we read that, and we say, okay, oh well, that happened. And we don't understand what a miracle that was. For three hours, now this is Passover, okay? This, This is Passover. Now for three hours, the priests have been in the temple, waiting to sacrifice the lambs, Passover lambs. All of a sudden, they've been in darkness. They can't do their job. All of a sudden, the light comes back on. They're able to see. And it says the curtain was torn. Now, Matthew tells us that it was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, this thing's 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. And it's about as thick as the palm of a man's hand. Ray Hughes said that uh, the the story has it that it would have taken twenty teams of oxen to tear it apart. But in a moment, that veil is torn, and this is the curtain. There's thirteen curtains in the temple, and some commentators said, "Well, it could have been this temple and that temple, that curtain or that curtain." And I say, hogwash, Hong Kong fooey. There's one curtain in particular. This is the curtain that leads into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is. Okay? So on that cross, atonement has been made. But not simply atonement, but now access has been granted because of that. Go with me to Hebrews 9. At this moment, all of the temple sacrifices are obsolete. At this point, the temple is obsolete. All of those animals whose blood could never take away sins, all that program is obsolete. It's done. God put an exclamation point on it. The sun was darkened for three hours, and now the veil is torn from the top to the bottom in the Holy of Holies. And I bet those priests just about lost it. When they saw that. Later on in the book of Acts, we learned that a lot of priests come to the faith. I think it's around Acts chapter 6. And I guarantee you that was the watershed moment for him. Where did I tell you to turn? Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. Adam, are you ready to work again? Okay. Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, read verses 1 through 8. 1 through 8. And pay close attention as he's reading.
1: Then indeed, even the first covenant had an ordinance of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part, in which was lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had a go- golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had all the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone. Once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing.
0: Don't sit down yet. (laughs) Look at verse 8 that he read. In the layout of the temple, the structure, the, uh, the protocols, the Holy Ghost is telling us that the way into the holiest of all was not yet available. Even the high priest he could only go in one time a year, and that without and not without great ceremonial preparation, and only for a little while. All right, Adam, would you read verses eleven and twelve now? Same chapter.
1: But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come in a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption.
0: Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Glory to be to God. All right, if you're not shouting yet, go to Hebrews 10 now. Hebrews 10. All right, Adam, would you read verses 19 through 25? If anybody wants to run a victory lap, you just come out here and I'll high five you. <laughs> Therefore, brethren, having boldness us to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus,
1: by a new and living way he constructed for us, consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness, assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from, a, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised in faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaken the assembling of ourselves together, as is it, as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day
0: approaching. Glory to God. Bible says you need to go to church. <laughs> well, I don't need to go to church to go to heaven. Well... I didn't say you did have to go to church to go to heaven. But why wouldn't you want to go to church if you're saved? Why wouldn't you want to be around God's people? Well, the church is full of hypocrites. They're on your job, too. Yeah, why? we're not discriminating. Come on. (laughs) We'd love to have one. Jesus predicted there'd be hypocrites in the church. You go to Walmart. Well, I I try not to if I can help it. They're full of hypocrites in there. Food line. Okay, I mean, we could go on and on. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. We can see it coming, guys. We need to be reminded of what Christ did for us. You know, He's a worthy Savior. He is a loving God. He paid the price, having obtained eternal redemption for us. All right, there's two other miracles that happened, and I'm just going to mention them. There was an earthquake that happened. Uh, and also, it was so strong that rocks split. What would that be? Maybe an eight or a nine on the Richter scale? I don't even know. Um, And one other thing, and I don't fully understand it, but it says the graves were opened, And the bodies of saints, there was a discriminatory element there. Only the saints, uh, there were saints that came out of their graves after the resurrection because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, how do I explain that? I can't, and I'm not going to try this morning. But those were other, so there's a total of four miracles, the darkness, the curtain, Uh, the earthquake, and the bodies coming out of the graves. All right. Now, there's seven things that Jesus said from the cross. We've we've mentioned a few of them. The next thing that Jesus is going to say in John's gospel is, I thirst. I thirst. Now, before, he had refused any, uh, any liquid. They had offered him the jar of vinegar before, and he refused it. And that was because he had to taste the full measure of God's wrath. But now that's over with. He says, I thirst, and it says that they took a reed with hyssop and put it up to his mouth, and it was vinegar uh, that they put up. And, and here we see his humanity. You know. he's, he's fully God and fully human. He experienced the agony. And we think about also the, the rich man in hell. You know, He wanted Lazarus to quench his thirst. However, for the rich man, his thirst still has not been quenched. That's a horrible thought, isn't it? And Jesus is experiencing thirst here, and they give him the, uh, the vinegar. The next thing he says uh, is three words in English, which is, it is finished. One word in the Greek, which is die, and that means paid in full. <laughs> paid in full. Nothing more you need to do, folks. Nothing you can do. He's paid it all. Now we get back to Luke twenty-three. I got a few more scriptures I got to share with you. Just bear with me. I got to give you what God gives has given to me. Get back to Luke twenty-three and you get to verse forty-six. And we get to the final cry from the cross. There's seven. First thing he says is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Then he says to John and Mary, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Third one he says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Then uh, number four, Eli, Eloi, lava sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then he says, I thirst. Then he says, it is finished. And now he cries Does your Bible say with a loud voice? He cries with a loud voice. Now, we skip over that little detail. We skip over that little detail. But the way people die from crucifixion, it's not from blood loss. I mean, that's a part of it. But uh, you die from asphyxiation. That's why they break the legs of people, you know, to expedite their death, because they're pushing up to try to get a breath. So by the time a person has been hanging on a cross for about six hours, his voice is nothing more than a whisper. Okay, Nothing more than a whisper. But he cries with a loud voice. More on that in just a minute. But notice the language changes too. Before he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But now, how does he address God? Father. Sweet fellowship restored. Sweet communion restored. <laughs> Sweet fellowship, the price has been paid. Sweet fellowship is restored. He doesn't say, Elo, Eli. He says, Father. The same way he started his cries from the cross. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Now he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now, he's quoting from the Psalms. Go with me to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. And I'm so thankful for G. Campbell Morgan, Dr. Ray Hughes, um, C.H. Spurgeon, and John MacArthur, because I totally ripped off their outline to preach this. But you best believe, I, I, I chewed on every. Bit of it, <laughs> meditated on every bit of it, I'm not preaching this because somebody else preached it, I preach because I believe it, Amen. with all of my heart, Psalm 31, verse 5, he's quoting from verse 5, he says, into thine hand I commit my spirit, thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth, now I want you to know something a little bit different, when Jesus prays this prayer, he adds something to it. He says, Father, into thine hand I commit my spirit. And you also notice he has uh, redacted part of it. He, he's, part of it he didn't quote. The last part of it says, you've redeemed me, O Lord. And that's because Jesus is not being redeemed. He's the one paying the price of redemption. Amen. Scripture is precise, even in its omissions. He says, into thy hands I commit my spirit. You see, he's in control even of his own death. I'm going to read something to you from John's Gospel. You don't have to turn there, but I, I'm going to read this from, uh, from John 10, verse 17. He says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me. That's his life. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus is not a victim on that cross. He's a victor. He's in charge to the very end. The cross is not a tragedy. It's an accomplishment. A plan has been uh, carried out from the foundation of the world. He finished the work that God sent him to do. Now I, want you to, I do want you to turn with me to Mark again. Uh, Lord, help me find it quick. Mark 15. (laughs) Mark 15. By the way, Psalm 31, that was kind of their bedtime prayer. That was the Jews' bedtime prayer. Mama Haney used to make me and my cousins pray this little prayer. You probably prayed it too if you had a a praying grandma. We'd sleep on cots in their house, and we thought that was the coolest thing ever. And now I think, you know, with my back, I'm thinking, man, how did I sleep on a cot? And I loved it. I would have rather slept on a cot than anything and because it was like camping out in the living room, you know. And and she put us all on our little cots, and she said, now you pray this after me. Now i lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I awake. pray the Lord my soul to take. This was the equivalent of Psalm 31 for the Jews. So Jesus is praying really a sweet, a sweet prayer to his father. Like I'm committing my soul to you. I'm getting ready to leave this body, but I'm going right into your presence forevermore, never to die again. I I told you to turn to Mark 15, didn't I? All right. Now, verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried. We've already looked at this in verse 35. Some of them that stood by when they heard it said he's calling for Elijah. Because Elijah is a last days figure, okay? He's associated with the, uh, the Messianic kingdom. All right, verse 36. One ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, said, let him alone. We'll see if, if Elijah's going to come down to take him down. Now, it says in verse 37, Jesus cried out with what? Loud voice. Loud voice. And, and an interesting phrase here. It doesn't say he died. I, I, don't, I don't have the Greek word in front of me. But it says, the King James says he gave up the ghost. But it's different. But, it, but the meaning is important because it shows us that he is in charge, you know, he's, nothing is happening to him, he is the cause and the effect of everything that's happening, okay? Now look at something interesting, uh, verse 38, the temple is torn from the top to the bottom, verse 39, now here's the centurion, now the centurion, he's the Roman soldier that's in charge of this whole operation, okay? He's the guy that's responsible for carrying this out. Now, when the centurion, which stood over against him, look at this phrase. When he saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. You see, because he had seen hundreds, probably, of people crucified before. And the last thing they do is probably just whisper, "Ah," and expire. But the death of this man was unlike anything he'd ever seen. This man, not a victim, not not swooning on the cross, just just barely hanging in there, even though he had been tortured beyond recognition, beaten beyond belief, worn the crown of thorns, uh, had been uh, mocked, spit upon, crucified. But now the centurion sees something about this man That's totally different. And when he sees this man with all power in heaven and earth, even when he's on that cross saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, the centurion says, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. This is the one. We have crucified the Lord of glory, and I bet at that moment he thought, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? Imagine the horror of the darkness of the three hours. Now it's over with. Now it's over. Now in Genesis, you don't have to turn there. let Let me read you a little hymn. You're probably familiar with this refrain here. Isaac Watts wrote this. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Now, in Genesis 1, you may not be aware of this. Now, I know Case and Brantley and Sonny know this because they're in the preschool Sunday school class. But they learned this in the preschool Sunday school class that the sun and the moon were not created until the fourth day. Light was already there before they were created. And then you get to the end, the end of the book of Revelation. Guess what? There's no sun and there's no moon. God, pay the total price. Go with me back to Luke 23. And we're going to close, I promise you. This is it. I want you to see something. (laughs) See, y'all got excited when I only had three verses for my opening text. You thought, man, we're getting out of here. early." It wouldn't be the first time I disappointed a crowd. (laughs) Won't be the last, but that's okay. Uh, Luke 23. Now, I want you to notice some things here, and I'm not going to dwell on these. I'm just going to leave this here with you. Now, the centurion in verse 47, he's converted. Now, Luke says he was a righteous man. This is a declaration of his innocence. The others, uh, Mark and Luke, say this was the Son of God. There's no contradiction here. It's just different eyewitnesses recording the same event and bringing out different aspects. But notice in verse 48. Notice it says all the people. You see that? All the people that came together to that site. You know what they thought they were coming to that day? A comedy. Oh, we're going. We're going to watch a show. Uh, MacArthur says it's almost vaudeville burlesque. You know, they they put Jesus in the purple robe. They mocked him. You know, and there's this play. even the two thieves uh, on either other side is a mockery of a king and his two courtiers. You know. But the crowd now, they had come, and they're an angry mob, right? The whole time they're, they're wagging their tongue at him and, and saying, Oh, if you're the Son of God, come down. But now that crowd that came to see a spectacle, they got one, didn't they? It wasn't what they expected, though. For three hours, for three hours, they had to stand still, not even knowing who was beside him, who was in front of him, or who was behind them. And I guarantee you, for those three hours, they were terrified. And then the, the temple is torn from the top to the bottom. And then there's an earthquake that's powerful enough to split rocks, right? And then the graves are opened up. Now, that crowd that came to see a spectacle, they have a different demeanor at this point. Beholding the things that were done, what does it say they did? They smote their breast. Now, you and I may not understand that, that idiom because we beat our chest in pride. You know, when our when our team wins or when when somebody slam dunks in the NCAA tournament, what do we do? Oh, we hit ourselves. Oh, look what I did. But in that culture, to smote the breast, to smite the breast is a symbol of repentance. Earlier in Luke's gospel, he tells a story of two men that went up to pray. One was a publican, the other was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees praying, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this other guy. You know, I, I do this and I do that and I do this. And I'm just, I, I'm the epitome of religiosity. But it says that other man, he wouldn't even look into heaven, but he smote his breast. And he said, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. You see, Now, am I suggesting this crowd got saved that day? No. But they're under heavy conviction at this point. They're under heavy conviction. And I truly believe that's why when you get to the day of Pentecost, And Peter says, with wicked hands, you have taken and killed the prince of life. That's why the Bible says they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? We've killed our Messiah. This is the easiest invitation I'll ever get, Brother Adam. (laughs) Jesus paid it all for you and for me. He died on the cross. He paid not just with his life, but he tasted death for you. He tasted hell. Hell came to Calvary that day. Now, would I try to describe it in any way? No, I I don't know. The horror that Jesus went through. You say, well, how could he do it in three hours? Because he's fully God and fully man. He's an infinite being. And so he can bear the wrath of God in three hours. But listen to me, dear friend. If you leave this world, and we're all leaving this world, one way or the other, by way of the rapture or by way of the grave, we're all leaving this world. And you go to God and you say, I'm going to be saved by my good works, by being a good person. You are going to be in hell forever because you can't pay the debt that Jesus paid. You'll never be able to afford your way out. You'll be there forever and ever without any comfort, without anything to drink, in suffering, in agony. And you say, well, that sounds awful. How do I get out of it? Well, it's simple. You can just call on the name of the Lord right now. It's, this is as easy as you'll ever get, guys. If you get left behind in the tribulation period, you're going to have to give your life for Jesus. And if you won't live for him now, how are you going to die for him then? Christ paid it all. The Bible says he tasted death for every man. Jesus paid hell for you so that you'd never have to go there. You'd never have to go there. In Romans it says that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So let me talk to the believer here for just a moment. Talk to the believer. In Romans 8... Verse 1, Paul says this, because I don't want you to ever forget. I think sometimes we, we forget what God's done for us. We do. We, we get saved and then we get used to doing things our own way. But in Romans 8, 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, that what the law could not do, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Do you see that? Believer, we're not condemned because He bore your condemnation. And if that's not something to praise God about, I don't know what is. Would you stand? If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, I'm not going to say repeat after me. I'm just going to ask you to call on God and talk to him as you would talk to anybody else. God, forgive me of my sins. Save my soul. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose again the third day. Be my Lord and my Savior. Believer, maybe you're struggling with something here today. Maybe you're struggling. Come here and leave it on this altar. Maybe you just want to come give thanks. and Say, thank you, God, that I don't ever have to bear The agony of hell because you did it for me. Would you come?